Hey everyone, wherever you are, I hope you're having a wonderful week so far. We have the latest episode of the Inside Crypto Show, interviews and discussions with regular people just like yourselves. Today we are joined by Michael Maselli, who is the CEO of Etherspot, an all-in-one EVM-compatible framework and a very much-needed game-changing innovation in cross-chain asset transfers and Web3 user experience. That was a mouthful. I'm so glad we have Michael on because we've scheduled this like pretty early, like maybe a month or six weeks ago. It finally happened. Michael's been actively involved in the space since 2016 as an experienced campaigner within the fintech industry, coupled with previous startup exposure. He's got a lot of things that we're going to be interested in hearing and love talking about today. Michael, thank you so much for making time in the afternoon, especially because it is a bit chilly over there. Tell us about yourself. Thank you. You said a mouthful experience multi-chain crypto web three. I'm surely that's just easy. Everyone understands that. My name is Michael Masera. I am CEO of Pillar Project and Ethersport. And before, I suppose I'll give you my background a little bit. Before I got into crypto, I used to work for financial institutions, investment banks, and so forth in the city of London. Most of my career, I was working on providing market data and market risk areas and straddling the technology slash finance areas, providing technical solutions where I have to understand the financial side as well as the technical side. And that's basically how my career was progressing. And around, I think, 2011-ish, I decided to set up a startup in an emerging African market. Then within this process, I was also an avid follower of the Bitcoin era and that sort of stuff. And I actually managed to get my hands dirty in 2016, where I was involved in a hackathon that led to us collaborating with a few other projects. And I ended up working with a bunch of guys on a project called Pillar Project, where we went through the ICO era and raised funds. And then somehow that Give birth to Ethersport. I guess I have a bunch of questions. What was that thing that prompted you to get interested in Bitcoin? Because that's the thing. I've been racking my brain to find out the first time I've heard about Bitcoin and I can't pinpoint it. Okay. And But I thought the whole idea of having a decentralized mechanism where a third party does not decide whether I should have an account, whether I should be sanctioned, I being the bank so to say, having the sovereign independence, I think that is what sold it for me more than anything. Just the ability for me to be as an individual, yes, you can take me out of your system for whatever reason, because it can be hacking, it can be for so many reasons, but I can still have my assets. I think that is fundamental importance for me the decentralized nature where no centralized entity is getting it. And I'm speaking for myself here, but maybe this relates to you. I mean, me growing up in South Africa as well, especially right now, South Africa is going through a huge power crisis where my mom was telling me on the weekend, some parts of South Africa, you don't have electricity for three days at a time. And again, there's a long story behind it, but can you imagine living in a place where you don't have access to your money for three days? But lots of African countries are like that, where... You can go to an ATM, you can't use your bank. There's this corruption, there's issues with the government, as you mentioned, gating off your money. I feel like a lot of cryptocurrencies is it relates to people who grew up in the quote unquote the third world. I hate to use that term, but but I think like speaking to people in England or America or the Europe, right? 
I feel like they don't have that connection that people in third world might have. And what do you think that is? I think that's a valid point. When in certain countries where they have a better working rule of law, there is no place where you would say it works perfectly, at least in my opinion, but a better working rule of law, they have more chance of not experiencing the trials and tribulations where some corrupt official decided you, for whatever reason, your business rival has paid them off and they've decided to freeze your account. I'm sure in the developing nations, this happens quite a lot. Whereas we've seen in the Western nations, say in the UK, where your bank account gets frozen while you are conducting a business and you ask the banks, no, we've frozen you for whatever. Now, if you go and search it on the internet, you'll find all those. So what if I own my own assets and you can't freeze me? Uh, to me, that is fundamental. Yes, uh, there are also sorts of other things that come with it. But what if I don't want to be my own bank? Because being your own bank entails that you have to take responsibility. And what if I make a mistake? How do I avail myself out? At the moment, I phone up the bank and say, my account is low. Can you just fix it for me? That may not be possible when I have my own bank. But at least I have the choice. I have the choice to do that. And that opens up a lot of other choices. Think of other things you can build on this infrastructure where I can own my own data as opposed to my data being given to whoever, whichever entity is giving me free access to their social media account or whatever free service they give me, but they own the data and I'm commoditized and I'm the product instead of what the product that they're selling. Say, if you look at the social media companies, they farm my data and they sell it. So my behavior, what I look at, what I click on makes me the product. But even though I'm being the product, who is in the big brother house, which every movie is being televised, okay, then maybe share some of the profits with me. But ultimately, going back to the Bitcoin we've mentioned, that is the beginning of this change in paradigm in the way we see and utilize the internet. That's true. Do you think we'll ever get adoption up in Western countries like the States, <clears throat> like Europe, like other parts of the world? Or is Africa and the developing world going to be leading it? I suppose we have to separate the payment from the infrastructure, the data side, and etc. Because when you think of the crypto payment, it could be a niche, but you would think to yourself, which central bank and which banking conglomerates would be happy for people to use a payment infrastructure that's not controlled by them? Let's assume for argument's sake, this thing works so fast and you can settle payments just quickly and everything and it's cheap. But the stakeholders that are the dominant forces right now, it is not in their interest to do that. Because if I'm a central bank, why would I want to give you the control where I do not set the fiscal policies through controls that are within me in terms of adjusting the interest rate and allowing which sector gets loans and all sorts of things? At least logically, it may not happen even in the smaller nations. But you can see, though, it brings another alternative. It brings another alternative in terms of maybe you can hedge some of the things you do. Say if you are a developing nation where you are hard up for foreign currency, 
and you have to export certain amounts of, say, coffee or gold or whatever natural resource you have, and you can only bring in X amount and you have a lot of imports, what if you allow some of your creatives in your nation to get paid in Bitcoin? You are effectively... And what if then that Bitcoin is being used to buy things from other nations? It means you are a little bit hedging your foreign currency reserves requirements in this case. But I'm not an economist there. That, that's an amazing want. example. I've never heard of anybody talk about that. And we do know Sri Lanka is a good example of our nation that's struggling with foreign currency reserves. Egypt, Ghana is another example as well. The lot of them. Yeah. Wow. I've digressed, but I think this also connects to something related to Etherspot, at least down on the questions for today. But we're here to talk about Etherspot. I've, of course, done the research as I usually do before the podcast. But for our audience, for our listeners, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're doing with Etherspot? Yes, Etherspot is a company that makes it easy for anyone to use Web3. You might say, what the heck is Web3? He just used Web3. And yes, we do know the internet as Web 1, Web 2, Web 3. But if you really break it down, the first version of the internet, it was read-only. You can read things, you can do things. Oh, I can read the news. I can buy things, e-commerce and etc. Then the second generation became, ah, I can actually crowdsource my data. I can have an opinion. I can upload my TikTok. I can upload my YouTube. I can upload my Facebook, my tweets. I started interacting with it, influencing and the third iteration would be, I can do all those, but with me controlling my own data. I touched upon it at the beginning. When I'm tweeting, when I'm YouTubing, when I'm Facebooking, and all sorts of other crowdsourcing data I'm contributing, what if that data stays controlled by me? And those that want to use advertising and run algorithms on those, they share some of the revenue with me if I choose to share it with them. That's where Web3 becomes. At the moment, Web3, the well-known aspects of Web3 are DeFi and NFTs and those transactions involving sending. But this is the next generation. This is what is going on. So it is in the DeFi world and even the NFT world, what we do is we try to abstract away the complexities of doing these things. Because at the moment, if you want to do something using the Web3 or the crypto space, you have to have quite a lot of things you have to do. You have to know about, oh, I'm using a wallet. I'm using this gas. I'm using this specific network. Then when I send it, I have to approve it. And I have to sign this. I have to sign that. The average person doesn't care. My argument is if I'm a pizza delivery driver, I've got a long day, and today I was particularly lucky. I made $40 in tips. And I thought, okay, my $40, I've heard about this DeFi thing, and I hear they make multiples. Let me go and invest my $40. So they call it staking. Then they say to me, oh, you have a wallet. Oh, do you gas me this? Convert this to this token. Convert that to that token. By the time I'm done, it's bedtime, and I'm nowhere near to doing it. I'm not going to come in from work and study how your system works. I'm an investor. So that's the whole point. That's why we are trying to use this account abstraction, we call it, to abstract away the mechanism you connect to a specific wallet sort of thing so that 
then you own your own data, you control it, but we make it easy, almost similar to the existing web, which is Web2 style. So with the Web2 style, does that mean it's like when I'm logging into Google, right? It's email, password, maybe a one-time password sent to my phone. Are we talking that level of Web2 or what's the equivalent? All of the above and more. It depends on your choice. You can choose to say, no, I want to use a specific wallet and I want to use this wallet to connect. And you might say, no, I can't be asked. I've got a Facebook ID. Can you? Can I use my Facebook or my Twitter ID? You can use those as well. Nice. You can use those and login. Obviously, what matters is, see, as a user, if I'm transacting, say, if I'm going to a betting site and betting $10, $5, I have no problem using my social login and by the way ten dollars five dollars because i live in the uk i can live with that potentially someone living in one of those developing nations where the per capita income is nine hundred dollars they may care a lot more about the ten dollars by the way but at least from my perspective if i'm doing ten dollars five dollars i have no problem using the social login however if i was transacting $100,000 or more than that, I care. Hence, I may not use my social login because my social login is as good as the Facebook server being compromised. And they say to us, there's been a hack on the Facebook server and 5 million passwords were compromised. I don't want to risk my 100K on that. But there is the 2FA and the passkey, which is passkey is a new thing that phones have embedded within them. There is a spectrum of where, how I want to log in, depending on the security I require for that specific engagement. Yeah, all of the above and more. I, people who are, have made it up to the podcast up to this point, there might be developers, there might be people getting into crypto. Let's talk about developers. So they're like, okay, this is interesting. I'm working on a project at the moment. I need some wallet integration. What's their first step? Do they go to the Ethospark website? Do they hit up your sales team? How do they get started? many ways to do you can go to ethersupport.io and then you have a section within there that says register your interest and our sales team will get back to you if you feel like it you can just go to our documentations and just pick it up and get on with it the whole point is we have created a few ways for developers to engage with us number one we've created an sdk in this sdk you can just look at the documentation and integrate the software development kit into your DAP or services. The next one is the easier thing we've created is a widget. A widget that facilitates cross-chain communication. And I'll come back to cross-chain and demystify it a little bit later on. Cross-chain communication, where you can seamlessly abstract away the complexities in going from one chain to another chain, from one token to another token, without the user being exposed to do it. Just like as I live in London, and if I was to come to Hong Kong and use Uber service, right now, Uber doesn't say to me, oh, because the driver in Hong Kong is getting paid in Hong Kong dollars. These are the list of exchange. Please swap your British pounds to Hong Kong dollars. So guess what? Uber app doesn't say that to me. Uber app handles that in the background. Just magically, the driver gets paid. That is what effectively Ethersport is doing when you're going from one chain to another, when they there are different tokens involved, the user shouldn't be bothered with that. 
the user has X token, we will handle it in the background, the conversions, and settle it on the other side for you. So that's what the widget gives you. The third one is we have this tool set called Transaction Kit. It is a React library, the first of its kind, where if you have a DAP developed using React, then this kit would just generate account abstraction code for you, for your UI, your React UI. So even Web2 guys can benefit from this, converting their website into Web3. So we have three ways of engaging. Think of it this way. Again, I'm just giving you a real easier example for those of you who understand a little bit about computing. Imagine when you use Twitter, when you load up a picture, it says, oh, to load up a picture at Twitter, it connects to our Oracle database. When you retweet, let's say for argument's sake, it uses SQL Server database in the background and Twitter says, oh, don't worry, when you retweet, we use the SQL Server. And when you do another action, we do MySQL. Can you imagine then Twitter saying that to you and on the menu when you're just about to retweet, it says, please select the database you want to use. <laughs> That's where <laughs> the Wave 3 is at the moment. In that when you connect, there are in, in excess of 90, even EVM chains. EVM means Ethereum virtual machine. And one of the popular development was the developer friendly and active developer communities around the Ethereum blockchain and the Ethereum virtual machine has been used by other chains, we call them layer one chains, uh, around 90 odd of them use this because it's a vibrant ecosystem. But what that entails is though, a community that is a specific tab that is deployed on Gnosis chain is just a silo. It's just like it's on Oracle on this one. And the other one is on Polygon, it's a silo. But as the example I gave you, when I use Twitter for all intents and purposes, they might have different databases, but as a user, I can't care less. And as an entity, they don't subject me through that experience either, they mask it. So why shouldn't the same thing apply for the blockchain ecosystem? Why do I need as a user have to know, oh, this is this blockchain. That's what cross-chain means. Say if I have a stable coin called USDC on Polygon, and if I have as I said, $10 worth, and if I want to use that, say, on Gnosis, I have to cross it over to Gnosis to get a version of USDC on Gnosis because these are separate realms. So cross-chain entails that. So what we do is the user shouldn't be exposed to the details. Let's mask it away. Yes, you have to move it from one side to the other side, but at least let's abstract it away. So that is what cross-chain entails and multi-chain existence means the current trend, popular adapts, they have to deploy on every chain. So it's just like saying, oh, this is the Twitter version for Oracle. This is the Twitter version for SQL Server. Come on, give me a break. That's just so 90s. So that's what multi-chain means. Thanks for that explanation, Michael. I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but I was asked this before, as usual, audience questions. They were like, okay, Michael, you're not the first person to talk about cross-chain. What about the security? And I think that's what a lot of people are still worried about. We know this week, Atomic Wallet was hacked for $35 million. One guy lost $8 million alone. Uh, again, not necessarily related to cross-chain, but that impact of hacks and security issues is still something that sort of clings to crypto's reputation. 
Yes, there have been a lot of security leaks. And when I was saying to you about being my own bank, and there are some issues with that, I can give you further problems with it. What if I lose my keys? Who will bail me out? And we've heard of people who threw away a hard drive that contained millions dollars worth of Bitcoin right now. So yes, being self-sovereign in owning your own assets comes with the price. And in that, that price is you are left on your own. That's why, again, with this account abstraction move, we're trying to address that. What if I have the ability to do multiple recovery in that if I lose my phone, I can recover it through my machine or I can recover it through a nominated person that I can use. What if I can actually have a 2FA and recover it through the email? Various spectrums that we're dealing with on the one part. And on the security side, then, as you've said, hacks, let's come to the bridges. The bridges, again, the current state of bridges is effectively, the analogy I draw with bridges is, imagine, give me a name of a bridge that you've crossed recently. Oh God, they're all in Chinese. It's called the Datong Bridge. The Datong Bridge, yes. Okay, imagine you, you wanted to cross the Datong Bridge. And as soon as you go, you get to the beginning of the bridge, there's a security guard and that says to you, oh, you want to cross? Is, yeah. You say, okay. Then tases you and you are unconscious and puts your body in the freezer and phones up to the other security clone this guy and your clone goes out runs around on the other side of town just having a happy time then the clone thinks it's you does whatever he wants and he wants to come back and goes to the other side and says that oh, i want to go back oh you want to go back then he phones up get him out of the freezer and it takes him out and this time the clone is not even going to be frozen it's just going to be taken out then you're back literally that's how the analogy is the bridging works. You lock it on this side, mint it on the other side, or do something on this side, send a message to the other side, so you would have something issued. But effectively, it's your clone running around on the other side. So as things stand, we do have this issue where hacks happen either when you are about to send the genetic code, someone gets that and sends the wrong one, or someone feigns that you've got a legitimate person crossing but when no one else is crossing then they will get another clone issued for free but it's on the communication quite a lot of the times and as things go there have been innovations in addressing these issues whether it would be some sort of consensus on the other side or having a liquidity but in time they are being addressed but this is a sore issue it's a, a, an issue of having these different realms existing where I can't just be myself in the other realm because there are two different realms. So we do have that issue, which is being addressed then and relatively young industry. And as a side of the transparency, because when I used to work in the banks and when I went into the crypto space and I was looking down at the people and saying amateurs, they get hacked every other day. Then I started thinking, hang on a minute, how many of the codes I've written when I was in the banks exposed to the whole world to go line by line and find weakness in it and attack it. Zero, because any code I've written is behind a demilitarized zone, then behind 
a proper mechanism to protect it and all sorts of things. So there was no chance in hell of my code being seen as such. So when you think about it, even the behavior in writing codes and the transparency, the exposure that you have, it, it is an evolution on its own. So yes, there are security risks that are being mitigated and hopefully they will improve more and we would have better solutions out of this as well. Nice. I think that's a good answer. There's a lot of, as you mentioned, there's a lot of good things with it when it comes to transparency. If you're a person who is a big fan of open source, open source has its huge positives and also negatives as well, because like you said, it is transparent. You can see there, there are things like that. But you look at, at password managers, right? Like our last pass was a big issue. They were a closed system and then they were hacked. Their information was stolen. They're probably going to shut down. And there was Bitwarden, which is an open source solution, which does well. Anyway, we're getting in too much into the geeky side. Michael, let's zoom out a bit. This is the hot issue in the last two days. And I think we'd be remiss, especially for the views and the downloads, if we didn't talk about it. The SEC has said they're going to sue Binance and everybody in crypto from like West to East just be like, oh my God, what are we going to do? What's happening? The, the prime minister in the UK has been like, actually, I think crypto is a good idea. So are you worried at all when it comes to Spot and the Pillar Project in regards to legislation? Again, an interesting thing I will draw to you. I have in my crypto life cycle, I have seen quite a few cycles come and go. And if I say the, one of the bigger ones were 2017, 2018, crypto went up and went down, then stayed down for a couple of years. The crypto winter is called, then it went up, the DeFi summer, etc. Then NFTs came, it went up, then it went down again. Now, with this, one thing you would see is with the current downturn, it was led by centralized entities in the crypto space. FTX, three arrows, just you name them, the list of companies that went down, they are all centralized entities in the crypto space. So effectively, their banks and exchange effectively working like those in the crypto space, not being treated like banks and exchanges in terms of the regulatory framework. It isn't a decentralized protocol going down. Just if what I'm saying is a bit too jargony, what I mean by a decentralized protocol is in the space, you have computer programs, which we call them smart contracts, that are deployed on machines, virtual machines that no single person can control. And once you deploy them, you cannot change them. And when I say deploy them, you can deploy a whole market, a whole exchange in one go. So this exchange works in an automated way. They call them AMMs, automated market makers. Now with this, there is no human being or an entity involved. When I'm buying and selling the counterparty, the offers come in an automated way. Now the code rules on this. If the code says, I have X amount of exposure. If I don't add more deposit, my existing deposit will be dispersed or I'll be penalized. And that's that. I can't phone anyone. I can't brown nose someone. I can't call my mate who would do something for me. It doesn't work like that. So in this cycle of the crypto winter, we have not seen any of these automated DeFi protocols going down. They have handled themselves in such a way where whoever needed to lose their loss, whoever was over-collateralized, 
that they were penalized for it. But the centralized entities, then they tell us, oh, with FTX, they had a backroom with Almeida and Almeida was their hedge fund. And of course they would. So these are centralized players really taking advantage of, oh, this is crypto, this is new, let's do whatever we want, hacky things. In reality, that's what happened. So I'm not surprised the regulators are going nuts about it. And now it's up to the regulators to understand and decipher nuances in this. And recently I did see, three months ago, something I think from the Bank of England, where I was surprised with the level of understanding that they had when they wanted to do a regulation on automated market makers. And they said, we can treat it like repo is basically repurchase every evening banks borrow from other banks for a certain percentage, then they pay it back uh, pretty much at the end of the, the, the night kind of thing. So we can treat it as such. So when I go and stake something on a DeFi protocol, they said, ah, oh, we can treat it as such. But one option they said, but we can either do that or the second option is that we don't treat this crypto as a financial instrument. We can just treat it as crypto, but with the same rules. And the third one said, but hang on a minute, just because I'm staking something and I get the staked value back, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to withdraw that. I'm just holding it to put it in the other one. So should that be a taxable event or should I just treat the outcome at the end when I withdraw it to, for the tax application kind of thing? So all that showed me there are some of them at least understand the nuances so that they're not stifling this innovation, not just in technology, innovation in the way we practice, because the banking world has been existing since the 16 something, when the Bank of England was set up, when the king wanted to finance his wars and that kind of stuff. So do we need to just stick to that or should we evolve it? So we are at a point of time where we see some evolution being made to this. So acknowledging this is healthy. Nice. Michael, very impressive so far. I think you've talked a lot and we've gotten a lot broad. We've talked about Etherspot a bit. I didn't want to take too much of your time today. So before we end up today's show, I just wanted to give the floor to you. Anything that we haven't talked about Etherspot or the Puller Project, any, anything else, pretty much as much time as you want. As I told you, I'm pretty free. Anything you'd like to mention, plug, as usual, Anyone who's listened right will know your Etherspot show notes, your personal socials will be in the show notes of the podcast and the YouTube video as well. Click on those there, follow Michael there. But yeah, floor is yours. Anything else you'd like to mention today? Thank you. In terms of the pillar wallet, we have one of the earlier wallets that use smart contract technologies. It has been around since 2017. And Etherspot was born out of this experience where once we moved the pillar wallet to smart wallet technologies and we realized we can actually make this available to everyone else in the ecosystem, then we separated the smart contract technologies and packaged it as Etherspot and made it available to everyone to consume. Now, this isn't just something we created today. We've had the background in doing this for the last, from 2017 onwards. So this is a battle-tested system that we have where not only you can use for the account abstraction angle, where you can make the journey of your users much smoother, you can also do a whole hell of a lot more than meets the eye. For instance, a certain project is using Etherspot as a means of tipping. 
Discord communities tip each other without paying gas. And Etherspot gives you a hell of a lot more than just account abstraction. But account abstraction is key to the mass adaption we all keep on talking about. To get the next billion users, you cannot do it the current way we do, where if I have to stake 200 USD, say I have a Gnosis into a project that is on Polygon, where I have to sign nine times and I have to understand all the details. And I mentioned about the pizza delivery earlier on, I suggest, but really that is how unusable the system is right now. So you would benefit a hell of a lot from solutions like Ethersport and please check us out as in ethersport.io. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. And I highly encourage people, as all people know, that I might be a geek. I like to build computers and play games as well, but I know most people don't like to do that. And I love crypto as well. And it has not changed. I definitely did not start as early as you. I probably started in about 2018 or so. And I feel like the usability is still not there. I still get questions from people who like, hey, how do I do this? How do I sign a transaction? So I'm totally on board with wallet abstraction, with abstraction as a principle as well. And I hope more people will take advantage of technologies that Etherspot is developing, things like the Pillar Project and the Pillar Wallet. And thank you again, Michael, for making time today. And hopefully we can catch up soon, maybe in a few months or so. See what's going on? Yeah, can I add one more thing? You just sure, reminded me because you are a gamer. And when you mention games, a lot of games are experimenting with Web3. I understand a lot of the game players do not like Web3 games I hear. Game companies are looking into it. And from my understanding, games in Southeast Asia are incorporating Web3 quite a lot. And if you are a gamer, a game builder, please, I implore you to check Ethersport out. It would make a huge difference to your users. Your users don't need to know and be bothered about, this is Web3, this is gas. We've got this integration where the user doesn't need to know and care about gas. Check us out if you've got games. Thank you. That's another good point as well. There is a Web3 game that I play. I don't have a huge amount of time, but I do play it every day. I'm not going to mention it, but the transaction cost, like that actually just takes out your immersion. And I'm hoping, as you mentioned, going back to the abstraction idea, going back to the no gas idea, that would be wonderful. I could just play this game. All this stuff happens in the background and I just enjoy the game for it being a game and not have to be reminded, oh yes, I'm playing a crypto game. Oh yes, I'm spending money every time I sync on the blockchain. So, yeah, no, thanks for mentioning that, Michael. Cheers, you're welcome. No problem. Everyone, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Stay tuned for another guest next week. As usual, we have someone very interesting. Michael was an awesome guest to have today. A lot of cool explanations. Check out his shorts on our YouTube channel, on the TikTok channel as well. You might actually see him on our Facebook channel as well for our shorts there. You guys are loving those on there as well. And then, as I said before, we'll catch up with Michael probably in about six months or so. Awesome. I would be more than happy to come back and report back to you guys. Thank you, Michael. Take care.